Welcome to Free Your Inner Guru, the podcast for discerning seekers, where we have all of the community and none of the cult. I'm your host, Laura Tucker. If you're a fan of the show and want to join the conversation, you can subscribe to the Free Your Inner Guru Patreon page. Your subscription includes access to our discourse community, live monthly Zooms, and some pretty cool merchandise. Your Patreon subscription helps keep the show going free of ads and supports me as an independent creator, for which I am very grateful. I'd love it if you would take a moment to go to patreon.com forward slash free your inner guru and subscribe to support the show. Welcome to episode 96 of Free Your Inner Guru, a little bit culty with Sarah Edmondson and Nippy Ames. Before we dive in, thank you to Shelly for your recent review. Shelly wrote, I love the message of this podcast and I'm so grateful that Laura is using her voice and this platform to promote freedom of thought. Now a little bit about our guests. Sarah and Nippy are subjects of HBO's The Vow, a documentary series about their experience and roles as whistleblowers who expose the Nexium cult led by Keith Raniere, who is currently serving a 120-year jail sentence. Sarah and Nippy host the super fun and educational podcast, A Little Bit Culty. It's a runaway hit, and it happens to be one of my favorites. If this is your first episode of Free Your Inner Guru, it will be helpful to know that I am a survivor of James Arthur Ray's Fatal Sweat Lodge in 2009. If you want to know more of my story, head on over to A Little Bit Culty, where I'm Sarah and Nippy's guest this week. I'm releasing this episode on the same day as a follow-up conversation that gets into unhealthy dynamics that are common to both of our experiences. Sarah Edmondson and Nippy Ames met and married while they were both members of Nexium, which of course they didn't realize was a dangerous cult at the time. Sarah is a Canadian actress who has starred in the CBS series Salvation, and more than 12 films for the Hallmark Channel and Lifetime. In 2019, Sarah published Scarred, the true story of how I escaped Nexium, the cult that bound my life. Nippy has come full circle back to what he was born to do, performing, creating, and truth-telling. He's proving to be an emerging voice in the conversation around what it means to be an upstanding man, husband, and father in 2021 and beyond. If you want to learn more about their harrowing experience, watch The Vow. Season 2 is releasing on HBO in 2022. Or read or listen to the audiobook of Sarah's memoir, Scarred. Speaking of Scarred, I have a hardcover copy to give away. There's two ways you can enter the draw. The first is to leave a review of Free Your Inner Guru on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or CastBox. The second way is to become a supporting member of the podcast on Patreon. As a Patreon community member, you have access to the Free Your Inner Guru discourse community, where we discuss topics raised on the podcast in between episodes. There are links to both ways to enter the draw in the show notes. The deadline is December 30th. Shelley and all current Patreon members, you are automatically entered in the draw, which will take place at noon Eastern, December 30th on Instagram Live. If you're a self-help or wellness industry consumer, my goal is that you will be empowered to recognize the dynamics that we discuss. My questions are driven by a long list I made while reading Sarah's memoir. They are red flags and tactics to steer clear of as you navigate these unregulated industries. So that's everything on my list. I hope you have a wonderful end of 2021. And with that, I give you a conversation with Sarah Edmondson and Nippy Ames. 
Welcome to Free Your Inner Guru, Sarah and Niffy. I'm so happy to have you both here. Thanks for having us. And I'm excited to tell you that I'm not going to ask you to tell your story. Instead, I'm going to ask you questions that sometimes I wish people would ask me. I know with my story, I have to tell it because not a lot of people know it. And it happened a long time ago. So that I understand that's mm -hmm. part of the emotional labor of the whole thing. But I want to spare you the energy. And I'm sure some things will come up as context. But I see this as a unique opportunity for three survivors of some pretty extreme circumstances coming together and talking about why we stay in the public about it. I wrote a, a sentence in an email to you, and I thought it's a perfect way to start. And I said, one of my goals is for both of our extreme experiences to be relatable to the average self-help consumer. Take away the branding, sex trafficking, head shaving, fatal sweat lodge, <laughs> and criminal trials. And maybe you're left with a regular self-help organization. Let's start off with how did the vow come to be? We were waking up and realizing that what we were part of was not good. And at the same time, other people were waking up like Mark Vicente and before, before any of us, his wife, Bonnie, she was the first to wake up. We were all still involved, still filling trainings, but we were also like in retrospect, we had all had problems with the company. I say company in quotes, like it, we called it a company. Turns out it was a cult, but it was also a company, an organization. Lots of problems with how business was being done, how we were not getting paid for certain things. Just the general morale was low, was something that Nippy says often, and I think that's true. And at it the, had been for a while. It had been for a while. It was it was constant, right? Yeah, there's oh, always so problems. Yeah. yeah, but like just the things that are good to know is that I was like fading, and at the same time being recruited into to DOS, the women's group that was like the secret sisterhood where I ended up getting branded, blah, blah, blah. But that hooked me in further to keep my loyalty. But at the same time, Bonnie, Mark's wife, was the first to leave and she didn't leave on bad terms. She, we found out later she had recognized that we were in a cult, but she couldn't say that because Mark was still so deeply involved. She had to be careful and strategic and left to go back to LA, I'm saying this in quotes, to pursue her acting career. And Nippy and I were thrilled for her. Like, I always had this thing with, we came here to work on our goals. Like, we should be doing that, not building this company for somebody else. So I was like, go. But at the same time, I was like, you also have all these responsibilities. Like, you can't, the level that we were at, it was irresponsible to just leave. So I was irritated with the mess I had to clean up. But at the same time, thrilled that she was going to pursue acting, which is why she came to the next team in the first place. Anyway, all this backstory to say, she left. So many things happened that led to Nippy and I eventual waking up. I don't know how much backstory you want here, but as well, we were I, I waking can sum up, it up. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think I think Bonnie recognized that people, particularly in the inner circle in Albany around Keith, were marinating in a toxic environment of abuse. And I don't think Bonnie understood it to the levels that we understand it now, because she was in it and she started had to start her own journey of recognizing. And I think that took a long time for her to get Mark to do it. But Mark and I ran a training in March of 17. And I could tell from Mark, just being around him, he had one foot in, one foot out mm. because of Bonnie. But I thought it was because of Bonnie and the relationship, not because of what he was recognizing. You need to understand it to provide context. Bonnie and Mark lived in Albany, New York, and they saw Keith daily. Mark daily, Bonnie peripherally. They're in that community. The community which... And I always said this to Sarah, every time we went to Albany, it felt like we were going to a funeral. It felt like we were at a wake. 
it was just a depressing environment to be around. That's why I got an apartment, our little crash pad there that I like to call it was four minutes from the airport and very close to the bus station. So when we were there, we could get in and out quickly, go to New York City. We weren't in the compound as it were. (laughs) We weren't in the area. So I think that saved us ultimately. And then when Mark was packing up to move to LA, he didn't tell me he was leaving because he knew he couldn't, he knew that I was still in for all intents purposes and not necessarily aware of the abuse that was going on and probably would have given the abuse a little bit of pause and not really taking in what he was saying. And I'm grateful to him in his process of lifting me out and then and Sarah out as opposed to just going bull in a china shop and guns ablaze and this is a cult, everyone get out. That doesn't necessarily work with people that are beholden for other, have equity in it for other reasons that are normally positive. So that's okay. March and then that he didn't he yeah. knew he was getting out eventually because of yes. Bonnie showing him information and he was seeing that it was problematic and he didn't like certain things in the organization, but he didn't know how out he was going to be or what he was going to do in terms of exposing the group itself until he and I finally spoke. This is actually like a key point in my book, and it's also in the vow and all the things that led up to that, which is basically we had an open and honest conversation for the first time in a long time. And he knew certain things and I knew certain things. He had been told that women were being invited into something and that they were being given a task to seduce Keith and have sex with him and take a photo to prove it. I hadn't had that experience, but I had been branded and I shared that with him and he shared what he knew. And we were able to piece together what we now know is a pretty accurate view of DOS, which is a pyramid scheme of blackmail to keep women loyal and basically at Keith Beck and call for whatever he desires. So it's like a sex trafficking. It's a sadistic, disgusting, um, no matter what anyone tries to tell you and how the women that are still loyal seek to minimize the abuse, this thing would have gone, if it's an algorithm and you want to extract an algorithm out, and this is something I wrote to a letter to the president of the company, like two weeks, three weeks after we left, people were going to die. That's where the shit leads. And so... Once we started to recognize what we were looking at, that's when the fear took hold, at least for me, Sarah, I don't want to, I don't want to skip the story, but, and so we were pretty freaked cut, out. cut to about mid May, um, of 17, Mark Vicente sends an email to everyone in the companies that it's about, it's about two sentences. I'm stepping down to pursue my career. Good luck with everything. And I was pissed. And it was what I'd feel, I felt that was going on with him for about six weeks. I had seen him since I helped him pack up from Albany, New York to LA. He came and shot my web series that I wrote and then I hadn't heard from him and then boom, that happens. And so I knew at that point, I probably wasn't going to be involved with the organization anymore. But you didn't Uh, know why. I just knew that was, there was more to the story and I had no idea. What the and this, this, this is a very, <laughs> yeah, this is a very messy time. We had to actually put it in a timeline because we started all writing books and talking to the vow because around this time before he fully got out, he was in a training with a student named Jahan and Jahan had taken a five day, I want to say like in 2009. She took a 16 day. In okay. She took a bunch of trainings a while back is the point. And she'd been in and out. She came to V week. We, we touted her as this humanitarian filmmaker. She made this film called the square about the Arab spring uprising. She was one of the people that we could say, Oh, this person's part of her community and look how successful she is. And she's amazing. And she was in this training as Mark was waking up and said, we got to f- document this. 
And not for, and then we're going to sell it to HBO and make a series. But we didn't know this at the time. They started to film when we finally woke up. And there's a whole series of things we don't need to get into this on this pod because you just wanted to know how the vow came to be. Once we got out, we connected with Mark and we all worked together. And at first it was just like, we just had to leave. And then it was like, we can't just leave. We have to take this fucking thing down because our friends are in there and Keith's not who he says he is. He's a sociopath. And like Nippy said, people could die. And we, we took it very seriously, so we, but we also knew that they were going to come after us. And so I think a, a natural reaction from two to four people who were leaving was tell everyone that what they think they're involved in isn't what they're involved in and be responsible and shout that from the rooftops, regardless of the consequences. And ironically, because I was head of this men's group that had this chain of command of teams. I was head of it and I, I ran four or five teams. They ran four times to five. There's a chain of command that if you send a text, they had to send it back up the tree line. I basically went silent for two weeks and didn't tell anyone, which flipped everyone out. They were like, where's Nippy? Where's Nippy? I just went cold. And then I told them and I told everyone that, and I basically proved that the chain of command that we built worked to take the organization down. And so Sarah did her diligence on her end. And I did mine. And we were two very influential people in the organization, Sarah more so in the enrollment department than I am, but I was, I was the male equivalent of her status inside the company to the point where, to the extent of I had brought in a lot of people and I was in a position of influence. So when I said something, it mattered. And I met with some people who weren't believing it. They're like, no, I go, listen, my wife got branded. If you stay involved with this thing, you're on the side of an organization that's going to, that's condoning this. I'm the guy in your way. If we get up from this conversation and you don't believe what I'm saying, you and I are now at odds. Mm -hmm. We have a problem. You didn't have There's to do conflict. that with too many people though. Most you people, know, we didn't even tell why we were leaving. If you're leaving, we're leaving. At the, yeah, because we were the reason they were in. And so subsequently, and this is where Jahan and Mark have been filming, and Mark was recording everything, every conversation he was having with us, with everyone else to document well, yeah. how these organizations work. And just, we'll take over. yeah, so a lot of people are like, how do they have so much footage? So just like they set up this ranking system for communication, that was ultimately a big part of the demise. Keith also wanted everything filmed, everything documented for the future Keith library that was going to exist one day to document his, <laughs> his genius. Greatness. So, his greatness. So again, I don't know what you call that. It's karma or irony or I don't know. Narcissism. Narcissistic yeah. karmic irony is what it is. <laughs> so anyway, and as the time with Mark was leaving, he wasn't planning on making a documentary. He was recording everything for his own protection. Mark and I would, didn't even have that conversation until I signed an NDA. So he was freaked out because he'd been on the inner circle when they went after other defectors. So we knew that we were leaving. We weren't originally going to defect and cause a scene. We were just going to leave. And then we became then he knew the whistleblowers. He knew the playbook because he was on the offensive before. So anyway, he recorded everything. And that was ultimately what we have. And all of this is a far cry from what attracted you there in the first place. Yes. The exact oh, opposite. I, I'm confident that there are all kinds of very toxic, abusive groups operating now. Mm -hmm. And what I hope people can do is look at your experience, look at my experience and others like us and start to engage their critical thinking. Because I'll tell you, my experience this last year, even though the more I, I reflect on it and the more I prepare, like I was preparing for this conversation and I'm still grappling from how disengaged I might have been from my critical thinking for quite some time. 
Mm-hmm. And that is a very scary thing. So there had to be at some point some kind of buy-in. Nippy, what was it for you? What was the the draw? So it's best articulated in Yadi Lalich's book for me. I think there's eight distinctions. The one that really, if you look at people's buy-in, they have some sort of equity into it. Whether they've been in it for a long time and it's too hard to leave because they need to make it work. Some people are in relationships like that. It's why certain people hold on to stocks too long. The one that I related to the most was moral injury. And to draw a metaphor for moral injury might be someone who goes to war thinking they're fighting to keep the peace in a country and recognizes that they're unwittingly accelerating someone else's agenda. Their goodness, their principles got used for a clandestine agenda unbeknownst to them. The example I've said in a couple of interviews is you're in a war and next thing you're taking women and children out of a hooch and you're, and you're doing, you're watching people do terrible things to them. There's a reconciliation that you have to go, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for this. So I found myself aligned with a person who ultimately, like for me, the, I found the most trauma for me was finding out the rape, the pedophilia, all the stuff that came out. I had to reconcile. That was a hard, that was the hardest thing for me. So I had my initial shock when I got out. And then when I saw the stuff on the vow, that was the hardest thing because I felt like we were doing something noble. And often to get good people to do things like this, it has to be under the guise that you're doing something noble. And that was defined by Yanya Lalich as moral injury. So well, that was my the, buy-in. But what, it was, yeah, it was, so was it making a better world? Was it per- yeah, yeah, yeah. The buy-in? All that, Where were you all in? that. Yeah, all the noble. I felt like I had a purpose towards building a noble world. And that's why when I wanted to leave in other instances, it was very difficult because I felt like I was beholden to these principles and I had found something that was truly embodying it. And I was actually finding a hierarchy and a system that could actually express that and do that. So when I had doubts, I felt like I was turning my back on my principles. When things didn't add up and I didn't like certain things about the organization, I thought the overall good of what we were doing transcended bad business, lazy people I didn't really like to work with, certain things like that, because I felt like the overall, the stock market, it was going up in a sense. And to find out it never was, and the intent of the company was never that. And it was really creating a front. That's really what it was about. That, that was hard for initial embarrassment and humiliation purposes, because I had gone out and touted this company as something like, I, I have a Facebook thing. Remember Facebook reminds you of posts that you did 10 years ago. I had yeah. one just remind me of one I did 10 years ago. And it was, I'm a part of this amazing organization. We're creating stronger men in the world. And our society is, is being, you know, you know. I had a whole like sanctimonious kind of, and, and I just gagged. It, it's, it was just, I really believed we were doing that. And to find out that this guy didn't embody any of that was just difficult. I had to go through my own eating my humble pie. And I remember at the time thinking, I'm not going to stay here long. And hopefully I will look back on this and think I wouldn't change a thing. And I think I'm there. I think I got some really valuable lessons that I otherwise wouldn't have. And I've turned our story into, into some sort of wisdom and content for people that I think is relatable. Uh, but that was my buy-in wholeheartedly because there was no other reason for me to do this other than me believing that's what we were doing. And having a wife I could do it with and then hopefully my kids and, and stuff. But I didn't need the organization to do it in the first place. Oh, I want to put a pin in that and come back to it. So Sarah, I'd love to hear from you. Was it the same? No, 
I don't I don't even know what nobility was. No, I'm just kidding. I had a very different buy-in. There was like it was a lot though, it was a bundle. One is I was introduced to it through Mark Vicente, who has mentioned earlier, the, the person who got us out. But he also got me in and I'd seen what the bleep do we know? And that was his film. And I really respected him. And he didn't really even tell me that much about it, only that it was this community of humanitarians that were, I guess there is some, I didn't use the word noble, but there was a bigger overarching mission of changing the world, which had always been on my to-do list in some way. Like my parents taught me that you leave the world world a better place and activism was always a big part of how I was raised. So there was this idealistic vision that the group purported to have, it be said. But then there was also the community within that, like finding your tribe. And I always struggled with fitting in and I struggled with various things like bullying in high school. And I I felt like I'd found a group of people who I related to and had a similar uh, mindset or a mindset that I could, like a worldview that I could aspire to have and that would overall improve my life. I've I'd always been a seeker. My parents, my mom's a therapist, my dad's a counselor. So I was like a very accepting of personal growth and had done a lot of other things already by that time and read a bunch of books. And, and I was open to this, the concept of self-evolution. I wanted to be a better version of myself. I, I wanted, I had enough self-awareness to go, okay, there's certain parts of myself I don't like. I can't seem to change them just by reading a book. And then here was this opportunity to dig in and upgrade the whole operating system, which was a metaphor they used. And I liked that. I thought, wow, that's great. Get rid of the limiting beliefs, be the more optimal version of myself, be successful, have a community. It was all the things. It was so many things. Change the world. It was great. Yeah. If you could change the world as a byproduct of what you're doing, then all the better. I think that dovetails right into a lot of what you see, the the messaging in general self-help, because I think it's important to acknowledge until it wasn't this was very much a, a self-help group. Yes. I would even go further to say it was a self-help group or personal goals program in Vancouver, Los Angeles, Mexico City, Monterey, New York City, and not Albany. Meaning those were the fronts, but in Albany, it wasn't that at all. Because Keith couldn't abuse who he wasn't near. That said, a lot of, I believe that the personality of any organization takes on the personality of its leader. So there were abusive elements just in terms of how people were held accountable and they're held accountable on the guise of their growth. So people in positions of power, myself included, were stern at times when I just don't treat people like that now, but same way I was stern when I was playing quarterback in football, I had a position of authority where I could say, Hey, get back in the huddle in a stern way. I could say, we are not doing X, Y, Z with your goals. And that's what they were signing up for. And I think that kind of element, it's either you get more toxic or you're less toxic. And if you have license to be toxic, you're left at the whim of the person's capacity to abuse power or not. And Keith abused it at will. I don't think there's anything he didn't feel entitled to. Yeah. And I think you've, I, I think you've brought up something that I had it noted to to drive to towards the end of the conversation if it was shaped that way. But because there's no, because there's no accountability and there's no standardization, there's no central body like with other professionals, quote unquote. At the end of the day, a lot of these systems and structures are are identical to what yes. because they're identical to the business model and the environment that I was involved with, with James Ray, and that's not coincidental. The more I think they all watch what each other is doing and come up with their ways and means of 
exerting influence and and power and then ultimately control in order to build the business, right? In order to go after yes. their dreams. Yes. And so bottom line, when you're in environments like that, just like any company, if there's nothing to regulate it and it's a closed loop of feedback, the only thing that you can rely on is something so unreliable. And that is the moral character of the person yes. in charge. Yep. You, and the other things that are needed for those things to thrive are people afraid to, to speak up because they're afraid to say something and cowardice at the top, meaning people that will cede to what one person says. And that's not what we thought was going on in Keith's purview. We felt like there was an executive board. He was clever in how he set it up an executive board to hold him accountable. We thought those things were going on. He was uh, sleeping with the executive board. <laughs> yeah. Pillow talk and softly spoken <laughs> lies. That's how he, he enrolled them all. Can I circle back to something that Laura said a while back about how it was like it was a good personal growth until it wasn't? And I think that's true, but I think something that's important to clarify is that the, the good personal growth stuff was on the outside and that was the honey to lure people in. But it was always also from the beginning a sex cult. It was just hidden. So it wasn't that it, that he became megalomaniac and his ego grew and then he decided to bed more women. He had a harem when he started. Hid right. that from the community. And I didn't, lied. Yeah, and, yeah, lied. I actually read uh, Sarah Berman's book, which you may want to check out, called Don't Call It a Cult. And I was able to piece something together that I didn't know because I was trying to figure out where, where did I start thinking that Keith was celibate? I remember very clearly being told that Keith was celibate when I joined. He didn't need sex. He didn't have an attachment to sex. And it was from Mark Vicente's girlfriend at the time, Taya Banks, noted, because she spent more time there than I did, all the women were kissing him on the lips. And she said to Nancy, so does he get to have anyone he wants? And she got very mad at her and said, no, he's celibate. He's intimate with them. They're close, but they, he doesn't have sex. And lied to her and told me that. And then I'm, and, and I'm the one who told everyone that I brought in, no, he doesn't have sex. I could, never could. And we totally underestimated their capacity to lie. So all of this sex stuff was going on in Albany behind closed doors and any, everyone else around like us, were, we were kept from that. So it's too bad the way it's been in, in the media is like the sex cult. And also, I think he analyzed and then stole from other modalities like Scientology and Landmark and Est and looked at what were the things that kept people in. And when I hear about from other programs and large group awareness trainings it's it's all the same shit for all the yeah. and, and this and the same exercises like the same exercises that are really good that are actually really good and help people have a transformational perceptual shift it's all the same stuff a lot of it is also really simple stuff and it's the fact that you've invested the time and space to go there and that you're actually doing it is what makes it work it's the demand expectation you already have buy-in yeah yeah, buy-in, yeah. Yanya taught us that, right? Demand expectation. You're going to make your money. You're going to make your investment worth yeah. it. The people that wanted to get their money's worth got their money's worth. Sarah, I'd love to, if, if you're willing, I'd love to explore a bit. You got involved, as I did, in the sales aspect of it pretty heavily. It sounds like both of you were. In SCARD, you describe it in, in great detail. And one of the things that I thought would be good for people to hear about is the sales process that you had and the fact that there were like the three lifts and the expectations that you were deliberately trained into to bring people in. 
Let me just backtrack for a second. When I joined, I didn't even know there was a sales opportunity. I, I didn't join to have a career. I joined to help me be a better actor. But because I am a natural sharer of all things that I love, green juice, yoga, new books, movies, whatever, I'm loud about those things. They all said to me, if you refer three people and get your money back, which is something I did. And then if once you refer six people, you become a, a salesperson and earn a commission. So I said, great, I can use that to pay for these really expensive classes and ended up being something that took over my career. But what we were trained to do to answer your question is basically first to build rapport. So like you have to be connected with somebody. In fact, Keith called being rapport is what you need to connect with someone to be in the model of their world and to feel close with them. And some people have natural rapport. Like when you and I met on the seawall, Laura, we were just like, we've been old friends for years. There's so much to talk about, right? Like we clicked. That doesn't always happen right away. And some people have to like work to have that with somebody. I, I think because I'm a social person, I did have that skill set already. I didn't even know that I had it. But anyway, we were trained to, to connect, build rapport. Some people do that by learning to ask questions, talk about their life, just anything to feel like, oh yeah, oh, you're from Toronto. I've got family, whatever. It's just a connection thing. And then we were trained to find out, to elicit from them what they wanted. And so if I was meeting you for the first time, I'd say, oh, our friend introduced us. Thanks for meeting me for coffee. I don't want to waste your time. Let me cut right to it. Who, what's going on in your life and where do you feel like you could use an upgrade? Like what, basically trying to isolate what the person was looking for. And if they, if they said, well, my life's perfect, I'd say, well, then you don't need this course. <laughs> And they say, well, it's really great, but like I keep, I'm going through divorce and I'm feeling really stressed or, or my relationship's great, but I'm feeling like a crossroads at work. And, and I was trained to hone in on what the thing was that they were struggling with. And then I would ask them what it would be worth to resolve that issue in their life. So what, what would it be worth to have a healthy and, you know, dynamic and wonderful relationship with your partner? Or what would it be worth to you to figure out what career you want and to get clear on your values and be successful? And they would say, millions of dollars. And I go, great. <laughs> this course only costs 2000 There's one next week. And then I would sign them up. It was really easy. It was like build rapport, figure out what they wanted, and then show them how what we had would give them that. And I really believe that it would because most of the time it would. And there were times when every now and then I would say, I, don't, I honestly don't think this is for you. Very rarely, but it did happen. It sounds a lot like what I have been trained to do in various models of the coaching business. And it sounds like a lot of the training that's out there. And that's why it grabs my attention as something that is, I think, become normalized. I think it was Keith, he said to you that your job is to create the illusion of hope. What was the context yeah, he, for that? Because that's pretty telling. That, that's pretty telling. And that was my last time. That was the last time I saw him. And he'd never said it to me before. And I wonder if he was, I, I always wondered like why he said it to me then and if it was a test or what. Even so, I couldn't wrap my head around it till later. But yeah, it, the context which he was saying it is he had asked me, him and Nancy had asked me to do a video because I was a sales team and I was what's called a field trainer. So I oversaw a team of sales people. And would they just introduce this point system into the company, which was totally bogus, Laura. It was so ridiculous. But the concept could have been great. It was just designed. Anyway, I'll, I'll just tell you the cliff notes for it. It was like he wanted the whole community to be recruiting, not just the salespeople. There was only like 10 of us. He said, if everyone's bringing in new people, then we'd really grow. Great. That makes sense. And so he wanted to incentivize people to do that so that he could earn points for recruiting people that were redeemable for more training, like you would for a credit card. 
And the idea was that people would be motivated in a way that they would only to, to sell a few. Unlike getting to what the status I had as a salesperson was really difficult. Recruiting six people into a five day in six months, most people couldn't do. The average recruiting, and I know this now from MLM debunking through our podcast, is most people were, can only bring in two people, 2.2 people <laughs> yeah, as the average. So to bring in 2.6, sorry, yeah, 2.6 people. So just under yeah. three is the average. I'm not an average salesperson because that's a skill set that I have, but the average person can't do that. Okay. So that's why most MLMs fail and they rely on that. Anyway, Keith created the system so that every dollar spent had a 10% redeemable value. So for example, if you sold $2,000 training the five day, you'd have $200 towards the training. Now, most people that were in that want to redeem are taking trainings that cost five or $6,000, So do the math on how many trainings you have to sell to get a free level two training. Yeah. It's, it's a not lot. Sustainable. Yeah. It's, it, it's not. And not only that, when you sell people, sell to, and you redeem points, they expired within a year. <laughs> so the average person was never going to be able to get free training. Never going to have to pay out money. Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. not real cash. These are events no. that they're doing anyways. This is, yeah. it's not a generous move. No, it's not a generous move. And they had hired me, not even hired because they didn't pay me, to basically be the spokesperson and make it a promotional video for the new point system and to be like, hi there, everybody. I'm Sarah Edmondson. Do you like points? I love points. But guess what? Now you can get points and redeem them on future trainings. Here's how it works. And they had little diagrams. And they had me doing this. And I was so tired because I just finished this training. It also just been branded. I was in pain. I was out of whack. And he came in and checked in on me doing this recording and said, make sure your state is up. That's from NLP. And I think Tony Robbins uses that too. I'm in a good state. I'm a mo and the most important thing is that you're enthusiastic and you create an illusion of hope. And I didn't really reconcile that till later, that the whole thing, not just the point system, but the whole thing was an illusion of hope. The whole thing was designed to keep people striving towards something that it, they could never achieve. So they keep paying money and keep paying money and keep working on their shit and stay more and more in their shit. And, and when I say in their shit, that's what we, that was the term we used for like in our issues. This feels like a perfect time to, to get into a conversation about something that I think that was probably endemic to your situation and is also very common is this whole idea of being at cause and how that becomes personal responsibility and the slippery slope down into shame. So how did that occur for you? For me, initially, the whole idea of taking responsibility for current results in my life was initially quite empowering because it gave me the sense that I had more control and more impact on my environment than I realized. And so there was something there that, that initially worked. There's the good and the bad of it. Yeah. Nippy and I do this a lot with something that we remember as we look at what's the good and what's the bad of it. And a lot of people left Nexium and were like, fuck it all, throw the baby out with the bathwater and they walk away. I personally couldn't do that because I put so much time in, I had to figure out what was good. And for me, a lot of that was figuring out where that good thing came from initially and who created it. So I didn't have to feel like I had to pay tribute to Keith, which was a big part of the process. But the at cause concept, the good of it is exactly what you just said. There's a, so much good in having anything in your life and be able to look at it and go, okay, how did I cause this is one way to say it, but how did I participate in this? If something's not working, you go like, how did I get myself here? I, I 
chose to move here. I, I started dating this person. I wanted this job. I had certain expectations, lots of things that you can look at to see how you created something in your life that's not great. If you have a bad business deal go wrong, any, anything, even you have any, anything in your life you're not happy with, you can always seek to see your participation in it. And that includes having expectations that are not in reality. That was one of my big ahas with at causedness is that I had a lot of upset in my life because I had expectations that weren't reality based. And I was upset because other people weren't meeting my expectations. I can adjust my expectations. That was huge for me. I remember my first notebook said, expectations are not reality. That was really big. Change your expectations or move on to something else that's more in line. Anyway, but all of the bad of it is that somebody that can then use that to victimize you because ultimately part of being at cause is there's, you can't be a victim, right? You can't have something just happen to you. You have had to have been a part of it, right? And to an extreme, a woman is assaulted. There's the response of, but what was she wearing? Now, a woman can look at that experience and go, okay, maybe I now am not going to wear a short skirt in X environment because I know that and that would create a sense of potency for that woman and more empowerment moving forward. But it doesn't mean she wasn't assaulted. And it doesn't mean that those people did something wrong and bad. And the problem with the good cause of this structure is it protects the abuser from having to take responsibility for any negative action. And that's the downside of it at causedness. Even the way that Keith set up DOS, he set it up so brilliantly after years and years of expressing how women especially don't like to take responsibility and are looking for the back door and all this curriculum that set us up for the culmination of us leaving. Me even breaking my, my code of, of secrecy to be public about it. And the fact that I was upset, that I was angry, and fearful was all used against me to the point where the people who remained after I left said, see, this is exactly why we need this women's group because of women like Sarah, so reactive, so ha having a tantrum because she didn't get what she wanted and her, she had buyer's remorse and she had regrets. And so she's having a tantrum so she can let go of the responsibility and the commitment that she made. And on top of that, like in that model, they can always say, Sarah made a choice. Sarah agreed. Sarah consented, and now she's not taking responsibility, omitting the fact that they lied to me about the thing that I agreed to be a part of. What I consented to is not what it was, so it's not consent. No, that's coercion. That's one of the things that I'm learning to have better language around. One of the ways that was used in the environments that I've been in is when it's that constant flip of what does that say about you? So if you came, I'm, I'm thinking back to a time, this is quite a, a number of years after things went down with James Ray, I, I was in a coaching environment as the, the client and I had a couple of concerns. On each occasion when I went and expressed it, it was immediately flipped back to me as, well, what does that say about you? No empathy. And it reminded me so much of what I had experienced in 2008, 2009, that I was like, what in the hell is this? Because in the scenario, I was the one who was actually trained as a coach and I would never do that. That is not how people who are actually trained with proper coaching operate. I think it's been modeled over and over again on this is how you flip the script on people. Yeah, we, we were definitely trained to do that. If somebody came with it, something that they were upset about and we didn't know how to deal with it, we would say, 
you seem upset. Go journal on that. Go talk to your coach. The upset was the problem, not the thing that they were had a problem with. And I was totally guilty of that as a coach in my later years in Nexium. But the first time it really happened to me, like on a public shame level before I left, was the summer before at the Vanguard Week retreat. And a bunch of people started getting promoted to a rank that they hadn't earned yet. And the ranking thing was very specific. You had to hit certain criteria that were very measurable in terms of your recruitment and skill set. But the one thing that was not measurable was your emotional growth. Like it was measurable to the people above you, right? Like you saw in my book, they decided when you were emotionally evolved enough and people were getting promoted. And I said, whoa, whoa, wait, like, wait a second, but they haven't done X, Y, and Z. And they basically said, Keith approved it. And I was like, so Keith can just change this very measurable written thing. And I was upset. So, well, if we're going to promote these people, and it was under the impression we we're promoting for a morale boost for the company, people were going to get a promotion. And I was like, if we're going to, if we're going to do that, then we should promote these people who've been struggling to get to Proctor for so many years. And I had a whole list. I'm like, if we're just, we're doing a bullshit promotion, let's do all these guys. And I got in so much trouble. They said I was being controlling. They said I was being suppressive. I was anti-tribute. I should question Keith. And I was so angry because it was so inconsistent to everything else that I've been taught. And that was one of the things I think that ultimately woke me up, even though it didn't at the time, I just like shelved it because I couldn't wrap my head around what was going on, like why I would be in trouble for questioning this thing that was so specific. So that's how the at cause thing can be used on you. We called it afterwards the Nexium flip, flip back on you. I, I don't want to leave this hanging out there because I see a lot of people who are starting to do work in the area of articulating why the at cause or the personal responsibility lens is a very privileged thing, that it completely lets out any kind of systemic advantage or disadvantage. I feel like that's going to be a topic that I want to take on in future episodes, but it can really send people into a shame spiral. If success and happiness is measured as wealth and health, what happens when somebody gets sick? What happens when something goes horrendously wrong? And what happens if you don't have all of the same advantages as, as the white person next door or down the road or from a different neighborhood? And, uh, and it's really, I think there's some really good, interesting work being done there just on the industry as a whole, looking at like, where are some of these ideas coming from and who is it inherently shaming of? Who's it benefiting? Totally. And I know for me, after the sweat lodge and after we talked, uh, I shared on a little bit culty about what happened exactly in the sweat lodge. But I was so geared and I'll go as far to say indoctrinated into the personal responsibility lens that I blamed myself for many years for what happened with Liz. And it was very, even though I intellectually knew that it wasn't my fault, psychologically and emotionally, it did a lot of harm. I'm sure. And I'm really sorry that you went through that. And I feel your pain because it's, it's heavy. Yeah. I get it. I did. I did also. And that's part of the struggle with leaving these things is like not being in the shame spiral that they set up to create you to want to do more training so you feel better about yourself. That that's why I think they do that. And also at the same time, taking the responsibility you need to so you can heal and own your mistakes and move on. It's such a delicate balance. Nippy and I are always talking about like, how, did I take on too much there? <laughs> Not enough. And to the point where like when I was first doing press and media at the beginning, people were looking to make sure that I felt enough shame about my participation from being a top recruiter. You know what I mean? 
that speaks more about them than you. Yeah, that's true. If if people are going to have a problem with you turning this into a positive, I think it reflects poorly on their character. That's more true. Than yours. That was a sidebar anyway, but that's just something I noticed. It actually sidebars beautifully into something I wanted to ask you because you've both decided uh, together to, to stay public with with your involvement and to keep sharing your journey via The Vow, which will have a season two coming up and with a little bit culty. What was the motivation there? Do you ever feel that you're doing it? Is it atonement? Is it helping others? What compels you to stay in these roles? I think it's different for Sarah and I. First, I want to say when this whole thing happened with The Vow and all that stuff, people are like, Mark, Bonnie, Sarah, Nippy, stars of The Vow. I don't think we're stars of The Vow. We're subjects of The Vow. And it's not something we set out to do. And part of the reason it happened is because Claire Bronfman decided to get on a plane, fly out to Vancouver and try to have my wife arrested. And for me, it's always been a love-hate of me deciding whether I want to have my personal life become other people's entertainment. And I also find when you resist something, it tends to own you a little bit. So there had to be some sort of embracing of this process to a certain extent for me to get rid of it. And figuring out what that has always been a dance for me. And then recognizing other people aren't being as responsible with the microphone as I think they should be also inspired me to go out and articulate what I think our narrative is in the best responsible way that I feel possible. So I felt we threw a punch with the media and the media was the, unfortunately, it's not the best on most honorable place to throw your punch. You have people that grab the media and they're salacious with it. They're going to be people that do their checks and balances. I think we made a lot of really good decisions in a short amount of time to ensure that Keith and Mary was put away. Once he was put away, I wasn't particularly interested in it. Again, I was faced with a demand that I didn't really want to make our personal life entertainment to other people and everything was no for a while for me. And then I started to recognize, look, there's a lot of good people that want to hear our story. They want to take care of our story. And the angel showed up, so to speak, in my life and took care of how we're going to show it and how we're going to tell it. And then ultimately a podcast became the thing. And you say remaining public, we're doing a podcast from our apartment and someone came and basically offered us and wrote an outline for what it would look like. So the work, other people did the work for us, our producers, and they pitched us this thing. And I basically was like, you mean I can just throw some headphones on, have some guests and have interesting conversations with interesting people one day a week about our story. And I don't have to go on this tour. And COVID was a blessing in disguise in that sense, because the vow, I think they were going to be pulling at us to go to these events, which would have been good. We would have met more people in person, shook a lot of hands. I'm not interested in making this story, the narrative for the rest of my life, our family motto is turning a negative into a positive. And I feel like we've done that. And our podcast is called a little bit culty, but that's an umbrella for things, other avenues, hopefully that we can turn it into. I think as long as we stay responsible and in our lane and then expand our lane, because we've earned that lane, so to speak, because we can, our story is applicable to that lane. One of the things to me where I feel like, I feel like our story and the abuses of power going on and how what you see in a lot of the political drama that's being stirred up on both sides of the aisle. And I see a lot of the same tactics going on. And I think our podcast can be a platform for calling out what are really abuses. And that's interesting to me, but in terms of public, I don't feel public because if I, if it's public, I have to go seek it out. So it's just, I don't do that. It very often. And whenever I 
feel like it's an interesting conversation, I'll engage it. If it's meant to be inflammatory, I'll just turn my phone off and ignore it. The only thing that really pisses me off right now is that when my wife gets attacked by people who refuse to pivot to the truth, because she's not in a position where she can defend herself, I am, and I have an acerbic tone when I want it to be, and I'm really biting my tongue and, and biting my thumbs for social media. But then I just turn it off, go away, take a breath, and it yeah. goes away. So I just... That's pretty much what it is for me right now. I'm grateful that we're not in litigation for the next five to 10 years. I'm grateful that we got our lives back. I'm grateful that we're young enough to pursue other things. And I'm grateful that we have two beautiful children and a whole life ahead of us still, whereas some people weren't so lucky. Sarah, what about you? Sarah likes it a little bit. Well, little bit. I probably do. I'm more into the social media, although I have a love hate with it. But in terms of being public, similar to Nippy, we didn't, we had no idea what, where the vow was going to lead. We just knew we had to get our story out there. And we really chose the right people, I think, to tell our story in a very nuanced way. And I think they chose up. We did say yes. We did sign paperwork. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but Laura knows what it, yeah, yeah metaphorically. Metaphorically yeah. and spiritually. Laura knows oh. it's hard to know what's out there. Media-wise, I know you oh, yeah. story. And I feel like they, after the vow was done and we had so many people coming to us just saying things like, oh my God, like I was taking this course. I had some bad gut instincts, but I didn't know what to do with it. And then I saw the vow and now I'm not doing it. And I did more research. It turns out it was a cult or I was in this thing and I was full bore and I happened to watch the vow because somebody recommended it. And I realized that the group I'm in is the same and I got out or I was in something 10 years ago. I didn't know what it was. I couldn't make head or sense of it. I, I can't find a good therapist. Then I saw the vow and I realized I was dealing with a narcissist. Like so many people at different stages of cultic abuse reached out is my point. And I realized that we were in a position of being able to help people. And I'm still the same person I was in 2005 when I joined Nexium. I like to help people. I have such a clear memory of my first five day and being helped so much with the things I was struggling with and being like, I want to be able to do this for other people. I want to be able to give them this gift, right? And to get paid to recruit. Amazing. Like it was such a, it was such a great thing for me at the time. Now, I get to help people and we get to do our podcast and shine light on these abuses that we now have such a clear template for. If I had heard our podcast or your podcast or seen The Vow or Wild Country or Buddha Field or any of these things that are out there, I wouldn't have joined Nexium. I would have probably not even taken the first class because I would have been like, wait, I only have 48 hours to get a discount. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to deal with that pressure tactic and I'm okay without your community. I would have had that. Mm. I would, or if I had gone to the first five day and then I'd be like, wait, you want me to call this guy Vanguard that I've never met and bow to him? I can tell you what you can do, but I'm not going to say on yeah. your podcast so you can put this online somewhere, but I have a potty mouth and I get pissed knowing what I didn't say because I didn't know. And now I know, and I want other people to know. So Yes, I want to advocate. Yes, I want to help people. I don't mind being public. Yes, I'm going to take more shit being public. Overall, it's way more positive than negative. And I can handle anything, I think, at this point. I'm feel, I feel probably pretty bulletproof. Do you ever just shake your head in astonishment that there is just so much out there that, that are high demand or cult dynamic or cult groups? I had no idea. I know now. Yeah, but it blows my mind. It blows my mind that they still exist. I'm learning through your podcast. I'm learning through having shifted my direction and also just so stunned by how rampant it is. Like, and I think the timing and I'm very, I have, this is a great opportunity for me to say this to you in public is that I'm so grateful for you, for all of you. 
I really am. Because when my story, our story happened, people weren't ready to have the conversation. They didn't know what they were looking at. No, they didn't. And even the makers of the movie and even to a certain degree, the, the podcast guru, which is far more recent, doesn't get into some of the areas that, that I think are still unexplored. And I have some theories that could verge on conspiracy thinking as to why nobody really wants to go and, and take a look at when you've got big public figures like Tony Robbins and Oprah. But I even think that is edging into general awareness that all is not well. I think to your point, and this is where I think the vow was effective in a way that a lot of other things weren't. Our director had taken our training. She knew it was good about it. And knew how the indoctrination works. And a lot of people, when Sarah and I sat down with them, saw us as subjects of something that can never happen to them. And that was the thing I was super fucking sensitive. No, you can it, swear it, you're okay. I want to say okay. that is so, it, you've hit it right on the head there. Yeah, that's why, that's why I felt like you were driving at. And I, when I sit down with people and I felt like they were talking to me like someone that this had happened to and it couldn't happen to them, I knew I wasn't talking to the right person. And I also knew I was talking to someone who's highly susceptible to being indoctrinated in something because they don't know what they're looking at and they're arrogant to think that they don't think that this could happen to them. It's my belief that no matter where you stand right now, particularly with how everything is binary right now, in almost every domain, vax, anti-vax, left, Biden, Trump, all those things. I think you're all wrong to a certain point down to your assumptions. You're not all right. You're not all wrong, but you've been indoctrinated into a belief system. And the systems that are in place online right now, if you click on a link, you've clicked on an algorithm that's going to take you further down your belief system and your confirmation bias. So you start to marinate in an indoctrination of your own belief system and confirmation bias. That leads to extreme belief systems, ultimately an us versus them. So whether you have conviction about how you think and feel about things or whatever, you've been indoctrinated and it's in your best interest to get extremely sensitive to what it is that's informing how and why you think what you think. And if you start to feel an us versus them thing, that's a great blinking light and a great portal for you to go in and go, why is that? Don't get mad at the other post, which is probably a bot at this point. <laughs> Right? Let's be honest. Like we know this stuff's going on. We're dealing with something that I don't even think this is conspiratory. You're dealing with an intelligent AI that's indoctrinating you into things a certain way. And it's your best interest. You're not going to outsmart AI and you're not going to run from it. So where does this lead? We lead to this, these culture wars where ultimately this toxic behavior is on this metaverse that we're all destined to have a date with at some point. And it's happened. It's not happening. It's happened. So the people that tend to think that they're not in that and they're outside of that, to me, number one, are the most susceptible, but they also don't understand what they're looking at. So they don't even really know the questions to ask you yet. So that's why these podcasts are important. That's why these discussions are important because we've had it happen to us, maybe in a superficial way. And maybe the people that are interviewing us wouldn't fall for it. One of the things that Sarah and I laugh at is while we were in ESP, in this stuff. We laughed at other people that were in MLMs and stuff. We thought they don't even know. Why are we in one? So I think if you can have compassion for your own foibles and, and extend that to others, you know what you're looking at, you know the questions to ask, and hopefully it'll lead to some awareness, but don't let AI know because they'll get smarter. And just can I tell you a funny story? 
Absolutely. Sarah, go for it. For AI, never mind AI. One of my very first big interviews, I'm not going to say her name, but it was a very big journalist. I was there with a bunch of other survivors and Yanya was there. So where I met Yanya. And but the questions were like, so why do people join cults? What is the pull and all that stuff? And then on a break, we're waiting, a camera break, she said something like, so what do you guys do now for your healing? And I'm like, I had green juice and yoga. And, and she said, yeah, I, I, I drink my red wine. And this is the journalist. And I, I do my TM, my transcendental meditation. And Yanya and I look at her, we go, that's a cult. She didn't <laughs> even know that she was in one. I said, that's, you're the perfect example because you're just doing a meditation that you got from TM which is like known in the cultic world, in my opinion, and so they say, allegedly a cult, right? And she didn't know. And I'm like, that's most of the people when I joined, I was joining a personal development program, didn't join a cult. And I think that's, I feel like as it has changed, you're right, your story. And I, by the way, I was thinking about you yesterday, and I hope this is okay to say this, I was in a sauna uh-huh. and it was really hot. And I was breathing in and it was like hot in my nose. And I was like, that would be fucking scary to be in that position and not know when to get out and wanting to get out, but not wanting to be weak. And I'm like, I get it. Yeah. I get how hard that must have been and how scary and how traumatic and so much healing that would have to happen from that point on. So anyway, my heart went out to you as I was preparing for this interview and thinking how crazy it is that that happened so long ago and we didn't even hear about it because, well, we were allowed to... <laughs> Hear about things. (laughs) Hear about things that were happening in the world. And I'm just really, I'm grateful for you as well. The more people that talk and share and don't be ashamed and hide from it. And like you said, dig in. And I love listening to your process from your old podcast where you're like, I don't know if it was a cult. Oh, no, no, I wasn't a cult. As you were trying to come to terms with these things. But I think what you were reacting to, if I'm not reacting in an at cause way, but like what you were responding to, should I say, was people not being sensitive with that, people using it in a reductive other that could never happen to me. It's very weird thing. And now it is much more acceptable to go, oh, I am in something not good and it's CrossFit or it's this church that's gone a little bit extreme or an online social group or whatever it is. It's a different era and we just have to keep talking. We have to keep exposing. And so Anyway, I'm grateful for you as well. Well, thank you so much. It's very mutual. And and I'll just, I think this is the perfect way to wrap it up. 10, 12 years ago, the reason that I didn't want to be associated with cult was A, I felt like I did buy into the idea that people who were in cultic things somehow were fooled, had to be dumb as a moral injury against Mm -hmm. the fact that I identified myself as being intelligent. And what would that say about me? I did the flip on myself. And I was also scared, though, in the grander scheme, once me and my friends, Julie and and Brandy in particular, started to realize that these dynamics were alive and well throughout the, the industry. And the only reason that we were on CNN was because there there was a fetal sweat lodge. But everything else goes unchecked. And there, there are people who are in situations that aren't good right now. And I, I think for me, initially, I did the podcast and I went in Enlighten Us as an atonement. But you get to yes. a point where it's not about that anymore. And it starts to become about really, this is to protect others. I'm quite happy to continue bumbling through my own healing in public here on the podcast because 
every time I get a note from someone and you must find it the same. Every time you get contact with someone that says, this is really helping me, it somehow makes the dark times a little tiny little bit worth it. If there was a way to get there without going through that, it would be great. But it just does something really good to my heart. And I imagine that it it does for you as well. Yes. If this helps one person. Oh, seriously. One person. If this this episode reaches one person, great. That's why we do it. Well, Sarah, Nippy, thank you so much for being here. This has been fabulous. Thank you, Laura. Thank Thank you. you. Such a treat. You have an ally in us. We're part of Team Expose with you. 